Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts, up a, piece, uh, puts, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment. And the worst hair is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Now I'm going to shock you. That's as much as we're going to do on that section of scripture tonight. We're actually going to move over to verse 18 now and here's why. I already taught on this passage of scripture in great detail. If, you, if you're interested in what this passage in this section of scripture is talking about, go back to the earlier part of our Matthew study, Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Go back to the website. If you're listening online right now, just go back to the website, Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18, when Jesus was talking about when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites and so on. We did a whole study on fasting back then, as you remember. And in doing so, we brought this passage in and I've already taught on the new wine and the old wine skins and all that. So guess what? I know you all can't believe it. I actually said this last night and this one lady said, until you read verse 18, we won't believe you. And so <laughs> let's go to verse 18. Verses 18 through 26 is the section we're going to study tonight. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. Now, as we've been doing, and I'm going to do again tonight, I'm going to take you to Mark's account and Luke's account of this, because we will get a much better understanding of what happens in this story as we look at Mark's account and Luke's account. And also, like before, you're going to see some apparent discrepancies. But they're not. But we're going to take a look at them and wrestle with those issues. But as you're also hopefully going to see, there's a whole lot more to this story than Matthew's giving us right here. So go to Mark chapter 5 and look at verses 21 through 43. <clears throat> Mark chapter 5 verses 21 through 43. It says, when, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may, live, so she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out for him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you. And yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. 
But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Go over to Luke chapter 8. Let's look at Luke's account. Luke brings a few more things in as well. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. It says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he, said, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now, Matthew simply calls this man a ruler, but Mark and Luke tell us his name. What's his name? Jairus. And he's not just a ruler, he's a ruler where? He's in the synagogue. So we see a little bit more information. So if he's a ruler in the synagogue, is he a Gentile or a Jew? He's a Jew. By the way, that's going to be very important later on that we understand that Jairus is a Jew and he's a ruler of the synagogue. You're going to see some more things come out of that in just a little bit. Now, for a Jewish leader to come and kneel before Jesus and to ask him to come and heal his dying daughter was a big deal. You have to realize the Jewish, Jewish religious leaders didn't like Jesus. You, you kind of got that by the picture by now, right? The Jewish religious leaders didn't like Jesus at all, and, but even though they didn't like him, they knew that he was from God. Now you say, Jim, uh, where does it say that they knew he was from God? Well, I'll tell you exactly where it says it. Go to John chapter 3. 
In John chapter 3, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I'm just going to make a statement here, folks, that you may agree with, you may not, but I believe the scripture kind of points to this truth. Even all those who say there is no God know there is a God. Even those that deny his existence or his authority and all this stuff, deep down they know. The Bible's very, very clear. As you know from Romans 1, all without excuse that he's revealed himself, he's revealed his law in their hearts. But the Bible actually says in Romans chapter 1, even though they knew God, they did not acknowledge him as God. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. God's revealed himself in some way or another. And here in this situation, there's a religious leader. He's a ruler in the synagogue and his daughter's dying. And he actually does something which is amazing. We see from Mark, Mark's account that Jesus had gone back across the lake. We've been watching him go back and forth, haven't we, on these journeys, going from one place to the other and back across. And he says, Mark tells us that they go back across the lake. Luke adds that all the people were waiting for him. And while they're waiting for him, a man runs up, and his name's Jairus, and he's a synagogue ruler, and he falls on his knees, knees before Jesus in front of all these people, and he says, help, I've got a daughter. Well, before I answer what the rest of it, what he says, we have to deal with a problem. I don't know if any of you caught it. Did anybody catch the seeming discrepancy? Did you catch it? What is it? Two times he says, my daughter is dying. One time he says, my daughter has died. Yeah, let's take a look at this. Go back to Matthew chapter 9 and look at verse 18. While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. All right, I'll go to Mark chapter 5. Verses 21 through 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And as you know, later on in the story, as they're going, the people come and then say, Don't bother him anymore. She's died. Go to Luke chapter 8. Look at verses 40 through 42. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people went pressed around him. So don't be too quick to answer, because a lot of times I'll ask you questions similar to this, and you think the answer is Yes. So was she dead when he came, or was she dying when he came? She was dying. Then why does Matthew record that he came and said she's died? Because he cuts everything short. Yes. If you've been looking at Matthew's account, remember last week when we told the story about the men who came and lowered their friend through the roof? And Mark and Luke talk about the hole in the roof and all this. Matthew doesn't even mention the fact that they cut a hole in the roof. He's an <laughs> no one's brought that out. I love that. He's an accountant. I love it. That's awesome. 
If you go back and you take a look at just how many verses Matthew uses to tell this story, in my Bible it's only this long. Yet in Mark and Luke it's like almost a page. Mark and Luke bring out more to the story. Mark, Ma, sorry, Matthew is just simply recording it. The facts. The man had come and his daughter had died and all this. Yes, that's true. His daughter had died, but that happened halfway through this story. And again, this like I told you, this is further evidence of the reality of the scriptures. We looked at this before. And if everybody's story was exactly word for word, we would go, Ooh, there's a red flag here. But they're not. But as you take the time to look at it, you realize another interesting little tidbit is this as well. If you were to do a study of the Greek words used in Matthew's account, you could also translate it instead of she's died. She's at the point of death. That Greek word actually could mean she's like right there. I mean, so much so that this man runs to go meet Jesus because she's at the point of death. And by the time Jesus even gets there, she's already died. And the Greek word that's translated died or just died in the ESV could also be translated at the point of death. She's like right there at that point. But I think the honest answer is like you said, Matthew just cuts things short and he just says there's a guy whose daughter had died. And she said, she's died. Would you come? And we, we deal with this. And again, there's so much more about the woman and her issue of blood and her whole story that is brought out by Mark and Luke. And we're going to get into all that kind of stuff. All right. Now. One thing that's interesting that I thought about as I was doing a study on this passage is that as a ruler in the synagogue, he had to be familiar with the Old Testament stories of children being brought back to life by God through his prophets. Some of you may not know what I'm talking about, so I'm going to take you back there. Go with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. If you remember back in 1 Kings 17, God had told Elijah to go hide at the brook at the Kareth Ravine. And then after the brook dries up, he says, I'm going to send you to Zarephath and Sidon to a widow there. And I've commanded her to supply you with food. As you know, he goes and she's making her last meal for her and her son. And of course, God then provides for her and her son and Elijah through them. But when we get to 1 Kings 17, verse 24, sorry, verse 17 through 24, 1 Kings 17, 17, it says, After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to, bring, to my, bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child life, child's life come to, into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. So being a synagogue ruler, he probably knew real well this story of when God used Elijah to bring a child back from the dead. Go to 2 Kings chapter 4. Second Kings chapter 4, look at verses 18 through 37. Now to give you a backstory on this one, this is Elisha now, not Elijah. And he goes, visits this area. And the woman says, you know what, this is, I believe this is a man of God. And she convinces her husband to build a little room for him. 
And he's enjoying that little room. And he says, hey, would you like anything? What would you like? Just ask God for it. What would you want? And she, she says, ah, no, I'm okay. I'm good. And he goes, I perceive you'd like a son. And her answer was, don't get my hopes up. Don't toy with me. That's something I want so bad, it would kill me if the answer was no. Don't toy with me. That's the backstory. Now we're in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 18 and following. When the child had grown, because she had been blessed with this child. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father, coming saw his, to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon or Sabbath. It's not church time. It's not Sunday or Wednesday. She said, all is well. Isn't that amazing? All's well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Don't slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And when the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, it's good. All's well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone for she's in bitter distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, don't deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, don't greet him. If anyone greets you, don't reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him the child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked back and forth in the house and went and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Now, everything in me wants to go down this road of why when her son has died, she tells the husband, everything's good. Gehazi, everything's good. But the short answer is this. Save your complaining and your crying out for the only one that can do something about it. We spend way too much time sharing our griefs with everybody around us and our complaints and our worries and our sorrows why don't you go to the one that can do something about it? She, she knew husband can't help. Gehazi can't help. She believed the man of God was the only one that could do anything, and she saved it for him. I just want to encourage you. that Again, I, there's way more to it. And I, there's so much in that story I want to pull out of. The fact that even the prophet didn't know at that time what was going on. Sometimes God keeps it from us. And he has his reasons. And then on, on top of that, think about the fact that he takes his, sends his servant with his staff and go lay it on his face. That sounds like it would work. I mean, the man of God says, go take it and put it on his face. He comes back and says, didn't do anything. God's doing stuff in the life of Gehazi. He's doing stuff in the life of Elisha. He's doing so many things all at once 
Stop looking for the formula, folks. Stop looking for the secret formula and walk through whatever it is God's got you walking through, but keep walking forward in faith and you'll see him do amazing stuff. Sometimes we'll think, well, this is probably what God wants, and then it doesn't work. What do we do, quit? Or do we keep pressing on to God and say, okay, God, what, what would you have? What is your plan? I thought it was this, but maybe not. I thought it was this, but maybe not. Are you willing to keep going? I'll just stop, but I think I want to preach that passage so bad. But the whole point was this. Jairus had to have known these stories. And so whether he believes Jesus is the Messiah or not, we don't know. But we know this much. He believes he's enough of a man of God. Remember what Nicodemus said? We know that you're a man sent from God because no one can do the things you're doing unless God were with you. He might think he's just a prophet. But he runs to him and his daughter at the point of death. Pretty much say she's dead. He probably wasn't shocked that she was dead by the time they got back to the house. But there's a man of God here. And maybe he can do something. Yes, sir. Go ahead. That's a possibility as well. That's a possibility as well that because he wasn't really in Jerusalem, he hadn't had that much of a, of a bad influence from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. That's a possibility as well. But we can't, we can't diminish his faith, you know. But how many of you caught the difference in the faith of Jairus versus the faith of the centurion that we just studied back in Matthew chapter 8? Did anybody notice the difference in the faith of the two? Did anybody catch the difference? Can you tell me what it is? Good for you. Good for you. One, Jairus says, you got to come to my house. The centurion says, you don't got to come to my house because Jesus said, let's go. He said, no, no, no. All you got to do is just say the word. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 8. He said he wasn't worthy. He said, exactly. He said, you're not even worthy to come into my house. He definitely understood him at a different level. And you're going to see Jesus bring that out, Michael. No, that's what I was talking about. There was a, the, the, the centurion said, you're not, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. Is that, did I word it backwards? I, uh, Yeah, well, again, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is that attitude's great to start with, but once he comes to indwell us, he's made us worthy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? To keep making it act like you have to get saved over again and again, that's not a good thing. That's the part that people actually get to reply in that. Go to Matthew chapter 8, look at verses 5 through 10. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Look at Jesus' response. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Yet at the same time, does Jesus say to Jairus, you don't got enough faith, so if you had only believed that I could just say this with my word. and No, he's willing to meet you where you're at. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. There's nothing wrong with, you don't got to be someone of this level of faith like somebody else to be able to have Jesus deal with you, folks. He knows you. He knows where you're at. He knows where you lack. He knows where you're strong. Don't get, don't listen to these preachers that said, if you had just this much faith, then God would, no, he's willing to work with whatever level of faith you got. Because he gave it. <laughs> because he gave it. And he also, he's desiring you to grow in your faith. 
He's not waiting for you to get to a certain level and then I'll deal with you. But that's what that, some of that kind of preaching is kind of teaching. You've got to have this kind of level of faith or else Jesus won't deal with you. Oh, that's not what the Bible teaches. So as Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, we're going to see this episode with Jairus as well as the woman who comes on the scene, I believe, is to get the attention of Israel. Now I'm going to deal with that more in a little bit. But now as they're on their way to Jairus' house, a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years pushed herself through the crowd in order to hopefully just touch the fringe of his garment. Matthew brings out fringe. The other ones just say garment. But Matthew brings out the fringe of his garment. Some commentators and, and uh, Bible scholars think it might have been that she just wanted to touch the, one of those tassels. You remember back in the Law of Moses there was, that the rabbis were to have the tassels on their garments that showed their, 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 their status and their role or whatever. She might have been wanting to just touch one of those tassels, the fringe of his garment. We don't know. Of course, as you know, Jesus got all over the Pharisees for the fact that they made their tassels big and the phylacteries wide. And they wanted everybody to know that they were impressive. They wanted everybody to see that. But Jesus very much most likely, because the law of Moses said so, wore a garment that had those on them. They probably weren't as big as the Pharisees, but he most likely had that type of a fringe. But she wants to just touch the fringe of his garment, for she believed that if she just simply touched his garment, she would be healed. Now, using all the gospel stories together, the gospel accounts together, we see that she had been to many doctors and had gotten worse. Anybody else been through that? Anybody? I, I could list to you 50 to 100 people I've known over the years that the more they went to the doctors, the worse things got. When she, no, I'm not saying you're not supposed to go to the doctor. I don't hear that. But don't just, um, just what I'm saying is, is, don't be surprised if that happens to you. That God uses that quite a bit in our lives. When she touches Jesus' garment, her bleeding stopped immediately. Oh, by the way, the gospel accounts also say that she had spent all of her money. Spent everything she had trying to go to doctors. But her bleeding stopped, according to Mark and Luke, the moment she touched him. All right. Jesus knew that power had gone out from him, and so he said, who touched me? Now, his disciples were a little surprised that Jesus said, who touched you? Because they were in a crowd of people, and many were touching him. I mean, they were just pressing around him as he just kind of walked his way. There were so many people. They were just bumping into each other as they go. But Jesus' question is not because he didn't know. I actually had a man just recently tell me, well, Jesus didn't know everything. I mean, when the woman touched him, he said, who touched me? I feel like power went out for me, but I don't know who did it. I don't believe that that's the case. As I'm going to show you from Scripture today, I actually believe he not only knew who touched him, I believe he knew it was going to happen on the way. I think from our story, you're going to see that actually as Jesus goes to Jairus' house, there's a whole lot going on here. Let me just hint at a couple of things. How many years had this woman had an issue of blood? How old was Jairus' daughter? Oh, there's more I'm going to show you in just a little bit, but there's something going on here. So, but he's, as he's on his way, this woman comes, pushes her way through the crowd, just touches the fringe of his garment, and he stops. And he says, okay, someone touched me. Who touched me? Now, can anybody give me an example of a time that God would ask a question that he already knew the answer to? In the garden. Where are you? Was, was God in the garden going, okay, guys, hide and seek's over. All the, all the income free. I can't find you. No, of course he knew exactly where they were, but he's wanting them to fess up. You're going to see that's important. When he asked Peter, he said, who do you say I am, Peter? Yeah, he already knew where Peter was. Good for you, Mark. That's another good one. They're all throughout the scriptures. 
Jesus turns to Philip in John chapter 6 and says, how are we going to feed all these people? He already knew what he was going to do. He was just testing Philip. And in this situation, I believe without question, Jesus already knew not only who had touched him, he had already known why, and he knew this whole episode was going to happen. I'm going to lay some more of that out in just a little bit. But he stopped and he said, all right, we're not going any further until somebody fesses up. And the scripture says from Luke, they all denied it. By the way, those of you who are parents and you have more than one kid and you don't know who broke the lamp, you know what I'm talking about. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. It's got to be somebody. The Bible says they're all going. Before I go any further, put yourself in Jairus' shoes. Put yourself in Jairus' shoes. It's going to help you understand some things in a little bit. All I know is that he's come and said, she's at the point of death. Jesus says, let's go. And the crowd just starts going. I can almost picture Jairus thinking to himself, if there weren't so many people here, we could move a little bit faster. That's going to be me and my wife at the airport tomorrow as we go. I do it by myself a lot, and I'm much quicker. But now there's going to be two, so we've got to plan that for the time. So I'm preparing for it mentally, Becky. I really am. And uh, at the same time, now this woman comes and touches him. And Jesus stops, and he says, someone touched me. And I can picture Jairus going, somebody fess up quick. But I think this is all tied together. Jesus' question is not because he didn't know. It was him asking a question that he already knew the answer to in order to have this lady come public with her faith. Go with me to Luke chapter 12. She had an amazing amount of faith. She had an amazing amount of faith. She just thought, if I just touch the garment, that's all I need. Go to Luke chapter 12. Look at verses 8 and 9. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Have you ever heard anybody say about their faith when it comes to Christianity? I'm a believer, but it's, it's a personal thing. It's a personal thing between me and God. You ever heard that? Listen to me very carefully. I'm going to say it as lovingly as I can. That person isn't saved. If you think it's just a personal thing between you and God, and you're not wanting to talk about it, you're not wanting to be public about it, the Bible says that's not real faith. Real faith testifies. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Romans chapter 10. Look at verses 8 through 13. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why does the Bible say the first thing that we're to do upon receiving God's forgiveness of our sins is to be baptized? It's a public testimony. The first thing he tells us to do is... Publicly testify to it. Because that's what he's wanting us. If you're not willing to say, I believe. Do you believe? 
Bible says you don't. You're actually more interested in yourself than you are your Lord. Folks, if you've not been baptized, well, I was baptized when I was a kid. Isn't that good enough? No, the Bible says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. <laughs> your public profession of your faith. If your faith didn't happen until a certain time. That's when you publicly testify to what's happened. Well, I just, you know, I, I'm just coming to these people. I just, you know, it's just between me and God. It's a personal thing. As you see, God's going to pull that out of you. If your faith's real, you're going you're to testify. If, if you're not willing ever to, I'd question whether or not your faith is real. Can we read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13 real quick? Go ahead, read it out loud. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Exactly. That's why John and, and the, other, the apostles and Peter were all told by the Sanhedrin, the same group that had Jesus put to death, stop preaching in his name. He said, we can't help it. We cannot but testify to the things that we've seen and heard. If you're truly a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're truly born again, that doesn't mean that Jesus wants you to go and tell everybody you talk to. We're going to talk about the end of our study tonight. I'm going to show you something that's kind of interesting in this passage. But are you willing to testify when he says speak? When she made public her faith act, Jesus tells her that her faith has made her well. Did you catch that? She touched him and she was healed immediately. The, blow, the blood flow stopped. But then he says, okay, someone touched me. Power went out from me. And everybody's like, everybody's touching you. Who are you talking about? No, no, someone touched my garments. And when she comes, he then tells her, your faith has made you well. She was healed of her sickness, but the saving happened when she came forward. You see it? Now, but in acknowledging or professing her faith, she also had to acknowledge her sin. Now, some of you may not realize this. I'm going to help you see that, hopefully, from Leviticus. But she had to acknowledge her sin, for in saying why she touched him, she had to admit that she was unclean. You remember, the, Matthew doesn't bring this out, but Mark and Luke come and say that she told the whole story. That she had had the issue of blood and 12 years and gone to all the doctors, spent all of her money. Things had gotten worse. The only reason Mark, I'm sorry, Mark and Luke bring this out is because the woman, according to the gospel accounts, told the whole story of why she came and touched him. In doing so, she was actually acknowledging her sin. You say, how was she doing that? Go to Leviticus chapter 15. Yep. He stops. Yep. I'm glad you brought that out. How he waited. He knew that she was going to do that. She knew he knew she was going to. And he stopped and he waited for her to publicly confess. There's somebody listening right now. I, I don't know. I just feel like God wants me to say this. There's somebody listening right now, either in this room or online. And your faith is real. But God's waiting for you to make it public. And I'll just leave it at that. Look at verses 25 through 27. It says, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she'll be, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, she sh shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. This woman had been unclean and unable to go to synagogue, unable to go to temple. For how long now? 
Oh, here's where it gets awesome. In touching Jesus, what did she just do? Oh, she, you made him unclean. I've made him unclean. Think about that. She made him unclean. Oh, don't, don't, don't get all def defensive for Jesus. You remember the man with leprosy? The Bible and the law said that if a man had leprosy, they're unclean. And what did Jesus do when he healed him? He touched him. Jesus, listen closely to me, is willing to be unclean so that you can become clean. Doesn't that what the Bible said? He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He touched her. So she touched him and she made him unclean. It's okay. That's why he came. Folks, I made him unclean. You made him unclean. It was your sin and my sin that he was crucified for. Don't sit there and say, she made him unclean. Yeah, so did you. So did I. And he's willing to take that for us. Man, I love that. Oh, and also, she made everybody in the crowd she was pushing up against unclean. Who knows what all ramifications of that all came about. Jairus still lit Jesus in his house, and he's a synagogue ruler. Ooh, geez, oh, Becky, I never even saw that. That's pretty cool. I like that. It's almost like she was interviewed when it was over, because it says in Matthew that she said to herself, where did Matthew get that? Yeah. Holy Spirit inspired. Well, again, the Holy, Spirit, Holy Spirit's the one who told Matthew that part, but he just left a lot of the other stuff out. But the other stuff we see, that's, she, in her telling her story in Mark and Luke's account, that was a part of the story. I just thought if I just touched your garment. Now, notice what Jesus calls her, though, when he heals her in all three Gospels. Remember I told you something deeper is going on here? Go back to Matthew chapter 9. Look at verse 22. Matthew 9, 22. Yes. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said to her, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Now, most of the time we see Jesus call someone woman if they're a lady, correct? Most of the time it's woman, woman, woman. But this time he says daughter. Oh, double check it with Mark. Go to Mark chapter 5 and look at verse 34. Mark chapter 5, verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Go to Luke 8, verse 48. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Humor me for a minute. I think there may be something here for Jairus and for Israel. I think, remember, who was Jesus sent to? He was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Remember, when he said about the centurion in chapter 8 of Matthew, I've never seen such faith in all Israel. He's trying to get Israel's attention. And then, of course, goes on and says, many are going to come and be at the feast in the kingdom. You guys, you Jews think you're the only ones in the kingdom. No, there's going to be many that come from the east and the west and sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. But he's trying to get their attention. You remember when he's, in the last week of his life, he's going back to Jerusalem one day, and he goes to get some figs from the fig tree. And as you know through the scripture, the fig tree is representative of Israel a lot of times. And because it had no fruit, he cursed it. And it withered. He's trying to get Israel's attention. He calls her daughter as he's on his way to heal Jairus's daughter. Remember, Jairus is the whole time probably going, come on. 
See, they don't find out that she's dead until after this all happens with the woman. You go back and look at the accounts. It's after this all happens with the woman that the people show up and say, don't bother the teacher anymore, she's died. How old again was she? How many years had this lady had the issue of blood? Israel many times is denoted by the number 12, the 12 tribes and so on. They were sick, unclean, and near death. But if you only believe, you can be made well. You just need to have contact with me. I am the way and the truth and the life, he's saying to them. I am the living water, he says to them. I am the bread of life, he says to them. I am the gate. I am the shepherd. <laughs> you, you see what he's trying to do? He's tr all this is to try to get Jairus' attention, the nation's attention, the people's attention, of course, the woman's attention. Folks, let me just put it to you this way. Most, if not all, of what we go through in our life is God using episodes to get our attention so that we'll learn more about who he is and who we are. He's continually teaching and shaping and molding us. He wants us to know him better. And sometimes for even greater purposes than we would have ever understood, and sometimes we may never know in this life. You remember how the Bible says most of the prophets knew that what they were writing was for somebody later on? Are you willing to go through something that you don't understand why it's lasted 12 years, but you know him well enough to know that he has a reason and he has a purpose. Just recently, I was preaching from Matthew chapter 45 this past Sunday where the Bible says that Joseph described himself as preaching on Father's Day and how he became a father to Pharaoh. In that passage in chapter 45, as he's meeting with his brothers, he says to his brothers, there's already been a famine for two years. There's still going to be five more years of famine. Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to call him father if he says to you, I know you've been going through it a hard time. I know you've been praying for that healing. I know you've been praying for this fix. I know you've been praying for this thing to be over with. And, and I know you've been in it two years. What if he said to you, you still got five more? Are you willing to keep going? You're going to need to say, Lord, then you're going to need to give me five more years of grace. Go ahead. Genesis, right? Not Matthew 45. Did I say Matthew? Thank you for clarifying that. I, I get going too fast sometimes. That's Genesis 45. Folks, all this stuff's been going on for a while. What if part of what was going on here with this woman's healing in the 12 years was so that he could be used to help this man? Who's a synagogue ruler? The man who was born blind. The man who was born blind, as you know. Again, we keep saying, come on, Lord. Come on, Lord. Get it over with. And he's got bigger things in mind than we realize. Are we willing to trust him? Or does it have to happen on our time schedule? By the time they get to the Jairus' house, the girl is definitely dead. Okay? With that whole discrepancy of, what, was she dead when he said it? Or when, we know that she was definitely dead. The servants have already come and told him she's died. When they arrive, the professional mourners are already there. That's all the people making the noises. They're actually, the Jewish culture had professional mourners. Go ahead. Kind of a replay of Lazarus, isn't it? It's a big time replay of Lazarus. And actually, we're going to go and look at Lazarus' story. You, wonderful transition there. When Jesus says she's not dead but sleeping, and they all laugh at him, he's speaking of her death just like he did at Lazarus' death. Go to John chapter 11. Look at that. Glenn's tracking with us still, and it's almost his bedtime. That's awesome. <laughs> 
I love it. John chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 15. Yeah, I'm getting back for the other time. I remember. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he quickly packed his bags and ran over there on the next flight. It does say that he loved them, though, doesn't it? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now he he let him die. He didn't worry about getting through. He didn't worry about getting through the airport, is right. But then after he, said, he, he, after he said this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the, the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. Who was the disciples not understanding what he's saying? The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Let him rest. That's good for him. He just needs some rest. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. Again, the preacher in me wants to go off on this section. Man, there's so much here. But he said he's sleeping. Was he sleeping or was he dead? Well, he was dead, but Jesus used the term sleep because there's physical life and there's spiritual life. And because our spirits, our souls continue, even though it looks like we're dead, we're still alive. You ever know anybody sleep like that? Man, it looks like they're dead, but they're really still alive. (laughs) I see couples looking at each other here. This is awesome. But don't miss this, by the way. Let me just say this real quickly. The Bible talks about those of us who have fallen asleep in Christ, those of us who have died physically, but they've fallen asleep in Christ. Those who are in Christ, they're alive, right? You know that, right? Their bodies may be dead and their bodies may have gone back to the ground, but they're still alive. It may look like their body's sleeping, but they're alive. At the same time, though, those who die outside of Christ, they're alive too. Not spiritually, but their spirit is still alive. Their soul is still alive in the sense that they exist. Don't let any preacher tell you that there's such a thing as people being annihilated when they die because of their unbelief. Or, no, no, the Bible's very, very clear that those who go to hell last in hell for eternity. The fire is not quenched. The worm does not die. They're tormented day and night forever and ever. But interestingly enough, the Bible says that those who die outside of Christ die twice. They have a second death. 
They'll stand before the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. And then they're going to be judged according to the works that they've done and the fact that their names aren't in the book of life. And those whose names weren't in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. I'm going to say something crazy to you. And I'm not going to try to explain it because I just found an awesome passage of scripture yesterday in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 where Paul's writing to Timothy and he gives them all these interesting statements. How a soldier doesn't get involved in pursuing pursuits and all this kind of stuff. And, and the guy that competes doesn't win unless he competes against uh, according to the rules. And then in verse 7 he says, uh, think on these things and God will give you understanding. Man, I love that. How many of us as preachers think our job is to make sure they get it? Why aren't we willing to just preach it and share it and teach it and let the Spirit of God bring in the understanding? That's why I get excited when Becky brings out stuff like she did or you do and others. I love seeing the Spirit of God speak to you and you hear it. That makes me go, yes! I don't want people thinking they learned everything they learned by parroting what Jim says. I want to see you hit the Spirit of God to open your eyes. Go ahead. What does the Scripture say about us all being able-bodied ministers of the Word? Yeah, well, actually, the Bible says in that same passage, entrust, teach this to faithful men who are able to also pass it on, definitely. Let me also say that crazy statement, though, that, that seemingly confusing statement. 2 Timothy 2.7. Did I say, what did I say? I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 2.7. Thank you. I'm getting fast again. When I get off my notes and get going fast, I sometimes quote the wrong place. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7 is what I was talking about. But here's the thing I want you to say. I want to say to you, my prayer is that you're born twice and you'll only die once. We're all born dead. We're all born spiritually dead. We didn't die. We already were dead when we were born spiritually. But we're going to, if you're born again through faith in Jesus Christ, you'll be born twice. You're born physically, and you're born again spiritually. And if you're born again spiritually, you'll only die once, and that's physically. You'll never die again spiritually. But if you are outside of Christ, you'll only be born once, and you're going to die twice. I'd rather be born twice and die once. And you're described as walking dead. Yeah, you are walking dead. Go to Acts chapter 7. Look at verses 54 through 60. Acts 7, 54 through 60. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. This is at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So did he die or did he just take a nap? He died. But... It was just physically, spiritually, he kept right on living. He kept right on living. Ephesians chapter 2, you don't have to turn there for the sake of time. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 9 says, We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God in his mercy has made us alive. He's made us alive. Also, I don't have time to go here, but go back and look at Mark's account, Luke's account, and you'll notice that Jesus wasn't also simply telling the girl's body to get up. He was calling her with it. You notice when he raises Lazarus from the dead in Luke, and sorry, in John eleven thirty eight through forty four, he says, "Lazarus, come forth." This wasn't just simply bringing her body back to life; she also came with it. That's why he's saying, "Feed her," all this kind of stuff. Talitha kum. 
But interestingly enough, Mark and Luke share something. Matthew doesn't bring it out, but Mark and Luke bring out that Peter, James, and John and the girl's parents were allowed in the room. Actually, if you put Mark and Luke's account together, it appears that only Mark, sorry, James and John and Peter and Jesus and mother and father were allowed in the house. If you kind of look at it, you'll see he tells everybody just kind of stay where they are. And the rest of them continued forward. And when they got to the house, only those who were with him, which is which logistically you can think about. It's a lot easier going into the house to raise this girl from the dead instead of all 12 plus the rest. There are more than just the 12. But imagine if the whole of the 12 came in. That'd been a little bit crazy. You know, let's all gather around the bed, you know. So logistically, we could say, well, he only brought those three. But there's a deeper reason. We're not going to get into it tonight. We're going to wrestle with those issues when we get to Matthew 17. Because when we get to Matthew 17, you're going to see Jesus' transfiguration, and you're going to see that he only allowed Peter, James, and John to see his glory. And then he said, you can't tell anybody what you saw until after the Son of Man's risen from the dead. You're going to see later on when he gets to the garden to pray, he goes further and he only brings who? Peter, James, and John. We're not going to deal with that tonight. We'll deal with that later in our study. But go back to Matthew chapter 9. And look at the very end of our passage. Matthew reports how the word, how word of this healing went through all the district. Well, Mark and Luke report how Jesus strictly told them not to tell anybody. Isn't that interesting? Matthew says in, in verse 26, and the report of this went through all that district. Yet Mark and Luke say that Jesus, remember, who's the only one in the house? Mom and dad, Peter, James, and John. Little girl. And he strictly tells them, don't tell anybody about this. Everybody's going to know she's going to walk outside that door. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. As she goes out, of course, you got all the mourners that were there and all the other people, the whole crowd of people that are all heading that way. There's a lot of people that know something happened. Word's going to spread. Then why does Jesus, if word's going to spread, why does Jesus tell them, don't talk about it? There's a couple of reasons. One is simply this. Whenever Jesus would do a miracle like this and word spread rapidly, what was the counterattack by his enemies? Does anybody know? Maybe we should kill them too. Exactly. They, not like, you go back and I don't have time to take you there. You go back and look at the healing of Lazarus and the raising him from the dead. The scripture says they plotted to kill Jesus because of it. And so many people were coming to Jesus because of Lazarus, they plotted to kill Lazarus too. We can't have this guy back from the dead walking around telling his story. The more people he tells, and back then there wasn't Facebook and Twitter, so they figured the quicker we kill him, the less the story will get out. He's protecting the family because he knows his enemies. He also knows, I'm not allowed to go into Judea very often. I got to make Secret trips every now and then, because every time I go, we saw that in John 11. Lord, last time you went there, they tried to kill you. He's able to do most of his work around the Sea of Galilee. But if he, lets, if he just starts telling everybody, pretty soon they're going to plot to chase him out of there. But there's another reason. And I really want to close with this tonight. He doesn't need you and me to get his stuff done. And he has his reasons why he wants it shared when and why he wants it not shared. You understand, we've just touched on some of the few. But what we've done over the years is we actually have started to think that God needs our help to get his word out. 
to accomplish his purposes. And we get together and we even have committee meetings in our church to find out how we can come up with a plan to reach our community. And if you've let the scripture speak, the scripture is very clear. When there's not enough workers and the harvest is plentiful, ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest field. As much as you might want to go into Asia, the spirit of God's going to tell you sometimes, I don't want you to go into Asia. I want you to go to Macedonia. But Lord, you told me to go into all the world and make disciples and teach them. Yeah, but I also told you to be listening to me as I go. Because Paul, I want you to go to the Jews. Peter, I want, sorry, Paul, I want you to go to the Gentiles. Peter, I want you to go to the Jews. You're going to see when we get to Matthew chapter 10, very clearly, and I'm going to deal with this some more. In Matthew chapter 10, he sends them out two by two and he says, don't go to the lost, sorry, to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans. Go only to the lost sheep of Israel. Listen to me, folks. I'm not saying God doesn't want you to speak. We already talked about that. He wants you to speak. He wants you to share. But don't think for a second that he needs your help. And if we come up with a good strategy, we can reach our neighborhood. That sounds so good. But what it is is, guys, we got to work harder because Jesus really needs us. He doesn't need you. Go with me to Luke chapter 19. Look at verses 37 through 40. As he, Jesus was drawing near, this is the triumphal entry. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory on the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let me remind you of Acts 17, 25. He's not served by human hands if he needed anything. Stop coming up with a plan to accomplish the work of God. Walk with him a day at a time and listen to him. And when he says speak, speak. And when he says don't speak, don't speak. Just rest in the fact that even if you don't tell anybody because he told you not to tell anybody, the word's still going to spread. The word's still going to spread. That is so freeing, folks. But unfortunately, we have been taught, as we touched on a few weeks ago, to measure results, to see how we're doing. And we're not supposed to measure results to see how we're doing. We're to be faithful. And that's all we're to be. And we leave the results to God. Because sometimes he's in the work of doing something that's got his, his, his end results 12 years down the road. Are you willing to keep going to be faithful if the end result's 12 years down the road? And if you're measuring results and trying to measure how you're doing, you're going to then start coming up with ways to do a better job and walk out of the abiding relationship. Jesus said, even though he had just done this amazing miracle, I don't want you talking about it. But Lord, if we don't say anything, people won't hear about this. Oh, don't worry. It'll get out. I'm bigger than that. I also have my reasons. And you may not even realize it. Um, Jairus, you and your wife and your daughter, this is for your own good. I love you guys. We won't be here for three weeks, but then I'll be back on the July what? I got it right here. We won't be here for three weeks because of travel, and we'll meet again July 17th. Thanks for coming. We'll see you then.